0: Law and gospel on this Bible study Wednesday, March the sixth in the year of our Lord 2019 is a very important day. It's Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, and I'll be preaching tonight in one location, preaching Thursday night in another location for Ash Wednesday. I'm Tom Baker. And on Bible study Thursday, uh, Wednesday, what we like to do is have groups in churches meet at 9.30, listen to what I have to say for a half hour, and then they can continue to discuss it. One congregation told me they went actually two hours in discussing what we had said during one Bible study. So it gets very interesting. We're going to be taking a look today at Psalm 91. So those of you who have your Bibles opened, you want to take a look at that. But I want to make a point before we take a look at Psalm 91. It's a point that I made in a sermon I preached here at the International Center yesterday. And the point is a very simple one. When I was a full-time pastor with a congregation, I would always meet with my Sunday school teachers ahead of time before they did the lesson to make a couple of points. The first is, how do we teach this lesson from a law and gospel perspective? What is the law? What accuses us of failing to meet God's demands? And what is the gospel? What has God done about our failure. The other point I wanted to make is a point that I learned very well from Jesus' kind of road to Emmaus experience, talking to the disciples, that you really haven't understood a passage until you find Jesus in the passage. So I just want to kind of summarize what I did in yesterday's sermon from Isaiah chapter 35 it says and verse 3 strengthen the weak hands make firm the feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not behold your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God he will come and save you now that doesn't seem to make any sense how can we be not afraid if God is coming with vengeance and with recompense? Well, what's recompense? It's another way of saying, and is found throughout the Old Testament books, this word, that when you do something wrong, you suffer the consequences of it. Well, how can God be coming in vengeance and recompense that leads us to be strong and not fear. This doesn't seem to make any sense. How'd you like to have a parent who says, boy, the only reason I discipline you is because I love you. <laughs> now, that that's kind of true, but it would make some young people say, well, I wish my parents hated me. That way, they wouldn't be disciplining me, according to their thinking. We really need to see where is Jesus in this text and the sermon and I'm just going to summarize it very quickly when it says behold your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God he will come and save you the vengeance isn't directed towards you the recompense isn't demanded from you now, one would think, well, yes, God's vengeance is against the devil. But in reality, who really receives the vengeance of God, the recompense of God? None other than, you ready? Jesus Christ himself. That's how you are saved. The vengeance of God against your sins comes with full power at the cross to the point where Jesus himself exclaims, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he's forsaken his son because his son at that time is the biggest sinner in the world. So the way that we are saved, God's vengeance and his recompense is directed against his only begotten son. And that's why it is so important to make sure in every text you read, where is Jesus? And that now leads us to Psalm 91. Here's how it begins. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, what does that mean? to abide in the shelter of the Most High. A shelter would be some kind of a, a tent or an enclosure where you're safe from outside influences. And what this is saying is that if you abide in the shelter of the Almighty, what is the shelter of the Almighty? It's God in his mercy, where he does not give you what you deserve, and God in his grace, where he does give you what you do not deserve, namely the forgiveness of sins. And verse two, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, this is a psalm, probably written by David, Is David talking about himself here? Well, as you go on, it says, For he, that's the Lord, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield And a buckler. Well, we've already figured out that what does a fowler do? He has a trap to catch birds. And that is referring to the hidden dangers or attacks. A greater term for illness is deadly pestilence. In fact, at its worst, a pestilence is an epidemic. And... When it's referring to the wings, it's maybe in reference to the wings of the angels over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. They symbolize a protective shield in a sacred place. Or, as a mother bird would protect her little chicklets from danger. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Uh, A buckler, by the way, is a kind of a round shield. Is this talking about us? Yes, it is talking about us, but as I made this point a number of times, the Psalms are not just prayers of David. They're not just to be applied to us. They are also prayers of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that, as I abide in the shadow of the Almighty, I'm abiding in the Lord, and he be referring to the Father in whom I trust, and I will be delivered from the snare of the faller and from the deadly pestilence. This is really important to understand, because what God is saying here. Jesus, is this song really applies to him. And whatever happens, wow, he does not have the fear because of his faith in God. Look at verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence, that's disease, that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The point that Jesus is making here is that even though there's going to be terror at night, and we remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the people who came to arrest him did it at nighttime. Peter takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Malchus. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, if I wanted, I could have a legion of angels here to protect me. But he does not have terror from the world. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Now, we need to understand that a lot of times when God is explaining his promises He does so with analogies with which the people are familiar. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. That could be a war, but it will not come near you. See, this is not a promise that when you go to war, many other soldiers will be killed, but you will not. No, that's not what this is talking about. It's talking, if we understand this, to be referring to Jesus, that yes, Even his own disciples fled from him at the Garden of Gethsemane. They were hiding in the upper room. Only John appeared at his crucifixion. But one would say it does not come near Jesus. What does not come near Jesus is something that he needs to fear in the sense that he will not be able to fulfill his mission. That was what the temptations of Jesus were all about. If Jesus had taken any of those temptations and done what the devil says, then you and I would not be going to heaven, because when Jesus died on the cross, he would be dying for his own sin. But though God regarded him as a sinner, he had done no sin. In the same way that though you never do a righteous good work without sin... God regards you with the righteousness of Christ, that robe of righteousness that you received through faith in the promises of the gospel, which are those promises attached to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Well, what does that mean? We already talked about that from isaiah thirty five The recompense of the wicked means that the wicked they are receiving the just deserts of their reward for sinfulness. But where is that happening? It's happening at the cross. Jesus is taking upon himself the recompense of the wicked. Recompense would mean that the wicked would have to give God enough good things in order to balance out the sins that the wicked have done. And that's impossible because God always demands, always, already, perfect obedience, and that isn't going to be happening with the fact of the wicked trying to do good works. The only way that the wicked are recompensed is by the death of Jesus Christ. And what's the benefit for the wicked? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. In fact, that's going to be the theme of my Ash Wednesday sermon tonight. We're going to ask, well, who is he asking to be forgiven? And for what reason? And so forth. When Jesus was on the cross, with his own eyes, he experienced the recompense of the wicked, namely, the suffering that the wicked should have gone through. He became the substitute. Now, why was he able to withstand this? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Now, wasn't that evil that Jesus suffered on the cross? But can we say it was an evil that befell him, particularly in the sense that evil had become successful in his life. No, evil may occur to us many a time, but the only way it befalls us is if we give in to the evil. If we decide, wow, I'm gonna follow through with this temptation because it's better for me. I'm gonna rebel against God. That's evil befalling us. That never happened to Jesus even though he was an innocent man on the cross. But who placed him on the cross? Well, we could say the Jews. We could say the Romans. We could say you and I did because of our sin. But when you really get down to what the Bible says, it was the Father who put him on the cross. Isaiah Remember that passage? And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes we are healed. It's the Lord who laid on Jesus the iniquity. And he successfully overcame that mission the God the Father had sent him on, by not failing. This is why God twice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The first time is at the baptism, where he takes on sin. It's a baptism of repentance. John argues with him, no, you shouldn't be being baptized, you should baptize me. And instead, he is baptized for righteousness' sake, that he becomes sin For us. And the second time is at the Transfiguration, where this is my beloved son, listen to him, because Moses and Elijah are talking about his exodus, his departure from the world through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Jesus is fulfilling the command of the Father. And then the the next statement is something the devil uses. Verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, the devil uses that and says, See, if you jump down from the pinnacle of the temple, the angels will still guard you and people will realize you are the Messiah. You don't have to go through the crucifixion in order to become the Messiah. And of course, Jesus denounces the devil for that temptation also. Because the devil is misusing the text. It says, to guard you in all your ways. Well, the ways of Jesus are not the ways of the devil. He's not going to follow the command of the devil in order that he would have to therefore not become the Messiah through a death on a cross. No, his love for us is so great that he's willing even to suffer shame, humiliation, and the cross. Then the next verse, and we're going Psalm 91, verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now, who's the lion? Who's the adder? Adder is a very poisonous snake. And the lion, of course, is often referred to as the devil, a roaring lion seeking not whom he can help but whom he can devour. Jesus is going to tread on the lion. That movie that talked about the suffering of Jesus, the passion, it opens up with Jesus with his foot on the snake. He treads, indeed, on the lion and the adder. He tramples them underfoot, and he did that on the cross. Then verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Even while he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He then pretty soon uses the name, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And then remember those last words? To his Father, into thy hands I commit myself. He knows the name of the Father. And the Father will deliver him three days later with a resurrection from the dead. These uh, next verses, namely 15 and 16, Think of Jesus. When he calls to me, that's God the Father, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. That's the Father who says, I will answer my son. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. You know, the glory of Jesus Is best found at the cross. What the word glory, to give glory to God, means to praise Him for what He has done for us. And Jesus has done much for us. There was no reason that He had to choose to die on the cross as our substitute, to take away the punishment of our sin, so that when that death occurred, Forgiveness is available to every person. The only people who do not go to heaven are those who reject the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because they don't think they need it. They're good enough as they are. It's actually a rejection of the law, the law's accusations against them. Then the last verse of chapter 91, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. With long life, Jesus only lived thirty years plus, died, and went to heaven. Whoa, whoa. He's still alive. His life is one of eternity. And that's even different than the eternal life of David because. David is going to have eternal life, just like you and I are, but there's a big difference because we did not have no beginning. We had a beginning. So we're semi eternal or semi eternal, as Mark Smith likes to say. Whereas God is totally eternal, He had no beginning. His long life will never end. The point I'm trying to make here with Psalm 91, as with all the Psalms, is yes, they are Psalms that we can pray because, remember, Jesus is the first fruits of those who are rising from the dead, and the Bible also says he is a type. What does type mean? It means that we also will receive the benefits that Jesus has already received. So the way I like to tell people to read the Psalms is read them from the point of view of Jesus, and you will find him everywhere in the Psalms. And then because you are a disciple of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, because you have faith you also receive those same benefits, even though at times it appears that God isn't keeping his promises. No, he is keeping his promises. That's why we live by faith, not by sight. Psalm 91, entitled, My Refuge and My Fortress. Yes, God is your refuge and fortress because... He was a refuge and fortress of Jesus Christ. Join with us next week for another Bible study. At this time, tomorrow's next long gospel with Wes Reimnitz. We're going to give you some insights into the recent meeting of the Methodist Church and what it means to those who are Methodists and those who are outside the church. I'm Tom Baker. Till the next Law and Gospel, God bless.
1: Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 930 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.